Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And our podcast is teamed on um, social and health issues. Myself and Timmy are in recovery from addiction for multiple years and we've been through prison and criminal justice system and we have our own stories of childhood traumas and then recovery so um, that's our background and a lot of our audience would have similar backgrounds so that's who you're talking to a lot of our audience may be professionals as well who would be well aware of you some went to your conference when you came to our home city in cork in ireland a few years ago mm-hmm. uh gabber matt it was actually in the city on the same day uh, i think you might remember that yeah yeah so um but at the same time a lot of our audience will never have heard of you but they really could do a hearing of you and because of covid19 the visits in the prison system have been cancelled but what you have now is a video calls which means that they have the internet in the cells in the prisons so our podcast is streamed into the prisons so this is a great opportunity for us to try to educate people while they're in that safe place because when they get out all bets are off because you know the, the chaotic lifestyle so that's kind of we want to try and expose you to a whole new audience i suppose that's the motivation here okay great okay so um i'll kick it off so okay hello everybody and welcome back to the two Norris podcast i'm your host james Zenner, joined by my good friend timmy long hi everyone and this week we have a very special guest, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, who is a leading expert on post-traumatic stress disorder and trauma, um, having dedicated 50 years of it, of his life to the, the, the topic. And um, we've read the book, The Body Keeps the Score, as well as a lot of our audience and followers. And it was trending in the charts during COVID, which maybe gives an indication as to maybe the the trauma people are experiencing because of the pandemic, but we might come to that. But you're based out of, you're from the Netherlands and you're based out of Boston. And there's obviously a huge connection between Ireland and Boston. And we have a lot of um, expatriates, um, Irish people in Boston that access the podcast. So hi to everybody in Boston. <laughs> yeah. But I'll kick it off. I'll kick it off. So and basically, if you can explain to us what is trauma and PTSD? And are they the same or differ? Well, trauma is an experience where you get stuck, uh, where something terrible happens to you and somehow you cannot cope with it. And you keep replaying it in your body, in your mind, in your dreams, in your reactions. And so a particular experience gets to, uh, to define to a large degree who you are. And that's not because you want it to be, but because certain things break down when the stress becomes too much and then the mind and the brain cannot cope with it anymore. And is post-traumatic stress disorder a specific reaction to trauma? Post-traumatic stress disorder is uh, the definition that we came up with to sort of get a sense of what, what happens after trauma. And the whole thing, of course, is much more complicated than any list of symptoms, but it was an attempt to begin to define something yeah yeah so a lot of our past guests uh, quite a few of our past guests have come through traumatizing childhoods and they've developed um autoimmune chronic conditions like um ulcerative colitis fibromyalgia can you explain to us how the past experiences of neglect and child abuse can actually create a condition like ulcerative colitis or fibromyalgia yeah an experience 
you know, it's very normal for kids to have meltdowns and to become really upset, to become really angry and become disturbed. But if you have parents around you who can sort of make you feel safe and restore a sense of uh, we love you and you're okay, you really learn how to, the world is fundamentally a safe place and you learn to manage your emotional reactions. If uh, nobody's there for you, if people tell that old tradition Ireland, of course, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about, stuff like that, huh? and you slap kids around, then it, you really keep their stress hormones keep going and the stress hormones primarily get expressed in somatic experiences. And so you live in an endangered body. You live in a body that's always alert. You don't want to because, but somehow that body of yours keeps feeling like, oh my God, they're going to get me or I'm, I have to, I feel agitated. I feel disturbed. I feel angry. And you sort of run by these raw sensations and emotions. And is there certain traumatic experience linked to specific conditions later in life in your book the body keeps the score you talk about a correlation between um sexual abuse incest and lupus later in life well that's that's one study we did uh, where we found it indeed the increased incidence of lupus but there you get into a delicate interplay between uh, your genetics your environment other conditions and the trauma and what's, what's really become clearer and clearer is that trauma can be expressed on multiple definitions of uh, levels of functioning. And so where it hits you depends to some degree on the age at which it occurs, to some degree on the circumstances, and to some degree on who you are as an organism that comes into a situation like this. As, but basically what's becoming more and more clear is that uh, just about any mental disorder that people have gets aggravated by trauma. Is it so possible that... People that come as trauma causes schizophrenia, but um, if you get abused, that gene is much more likely to become expressed. Or uh, so, so have we all, uh, anybody who has more than one child knows mm. how different one child is from the next one. We have come all with our predispositions in a way, but uh, but when you get abused, that really may aggravate any number of conditions, bowel problems, lupus, autoimmune system problems, uh, even cancer, heart disease, they all go up uh, with that history. Is it possible that somebody could have an autoimmune condition like the one you spoke of and have not experienced trauma? Uh, I'm imagine that's possible and you know in this world of our biology nothing is uh is, is simple and there's mm. always multiple interactions so i would never say uh lupus is always uh, involves yeah. trauma you're much more likely to get lupus if you have been traumatized yeah. but you may be able to get it some other way also yeah, is yeah, it part? Sorry, Jim. Jim. Does um does addiction right? People that are addicted to alcohol and drugs. Um, from my own experience, when I was using drugs and alcohol for the number of years I did, fifteen years, sixteen years, it. And when I stopped drinking, and I was dealing with trauma from my childhood and stuff like that, does it make a lot of sense to you why people keep going? Uh, with addiction, with alcoholism and, and, and drug addiction, you know, because... Oh, absolutely. There's a huge correlation between child abuse, childhood trauma, and drug abuse and alcoholism. And why is that? Because uh, when you get traumatized, you have the sensations in your body of feeling agitated, feeling scared, something eating away at you, a heart, like the use Darwin's terms, heartbreak and gut venge. And that's where you experience the sensations. And so you go through life feeling uptight and feeling frozen and feeling agitated. And you want to stay in control. And one great way of getting in control is by taking something that makes those feelings go away. Mm. Uh, in some ways, 
becoming a drug addict is not all that different from going to a doctor who prescribes you pills. You just prescribe pills for yourself. If you do it yourself, you're a bad person. If the doctor does it for you, you're a good person. But at the end, the result is the same. These are chemicals that make you feel more capable of inhabiting the body that you live in. Do you know, you know in a ho- go on, Tim. You know, a child that has had a traumatic experience, right? And they do go into um, addiction at whatever age, in their teens or whatever, and they stop. And they're when they're dealing with the trauma, when they get like when they have to deal, they go back into their childhood and they're starting to deal with it. Um, it can be very, very, very difficult for for people to. To, to handle that and it's really and it's important to say that this is very very difficult huh? because first you start off with a lot of trauma that leaves you feel feeling bad about yourself and bad about your body and you medicate it with your drugs and then the drugs are pretty good in pushing your things away when you get off the drug all that stuff comes back in greater force than the original stuff so be cleaning yourself up as you guys have done, is always a major act of of heroism almost. Like, I admire everybody who does it because I have some pretty good sense of how extremely difficult it is to deal with all that internal discomfort in your body and that craving and feeling terrible about yourself and ter- feel horrible in your body. These are It's really hard to become clean, as you guys know. In your book, um, I suppose in my experience when I was a young person, um, I always kind of seeked out a dramatic situations like being in stolen cars, being in violent events, you know, ending up in prison and all that chaos and drama. And I know certain people, I work in drug and alcohol service, and I know certain people like that, their lives are full of drama. In your book, you talk about traumatized people feel numb and they seek out drama because it's the only time to actually feel alive. And that resonated with me. Can you elaborate on that a little bit, please? Yeah. So, you know, when you're traumatized, you do anything to somehow cope and to somehow feel alive. And so one thing you become probably fairly good at is to shut off your sensations in your body because it's also somatically based. So you work very hard on developing your capacity to not feel. But if you don't feel anything, you don't feel alive. And so you feel like a zombie. And then in order to overcome that capacity to not feel anything, you need to do something that's pretty extreme where your stress hormones get activated and you go like, I feel alive. And so one of the great paradoxes about trauma is that one of the very first things that struck me working with veterans also is that they hated the war, but the only thing that makes them feel alive was doing warlike things uh, because then you, all your chemicals in your body start getting activated and you really become sort of a specialist in dealing with very, very scary situations. Uh, so you may, uh, I may become absolutely terrified being chased by the police and you may go like, wow, how cool is that? People are shooting at me. <laughs> 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 yeah, you spoke. You spoke about there. You did a lot of work with um, Vietnam veterans. Some, some who ha- would have committed some terrible acts, but you've yeah. helped them to overcome them. Now, people, some people accessing this podcast might have stuff in their past that they may feel shameful about. But do you, do you believe people have an innate ability to make good and an innate ability to recover? Well, we yes, we do have an innate capacity to, to recover. But uh, particularly if you have done terrible things, uh, that issue of moral injury is a very, very difficult thing because at some point what you have done uh, may be worse even than has been done to you. And so how do you live with yourself knowing that you have done terrible things? Uh, it takes It's a very deep spiritual journey also of, of penitence and of... Uh, making repairs. That's the self, self, self-step programs. Of course, we're very good at that already. That you need to make repair. You need to acknowledge the reality, and uh, facing what you have done is is a tough thing. Not only for uh, 
for young male guys who do criminal things, but also yeah. for women who have been sexually abused. They may say, oh, uh, this happened to me. I didn't fight back. Or I love the guy who did this to me. And, uh, and they may actually unwittingly set themselves up for sexual violation. And that because on some level they may think like the only thing that I'm good for is to serve some guys sexual gratification because I'm no good anyway. Uh, so you get these very complex reenactment type situations where most people who haven't been traumatized, they wouldn't, they wouldn't want to do that. But uh, if it's what you grew up with, people go back to what's familiar or what is, or what is safe. So if you're familiar with danger and screaming and yelling, you're okay with screaming and yelling. You know, if I go to a place where people are screaming and yelling, I'm getting the hell out of there. Uh, I can't cope with that. But if that was something you grew up with, you may go, yeah, yeah, I know how to deal with it. I actually mm. like to get to a barroom brawl and kick some ass. You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> I didn't want to kick ass in the bar. You know, like, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a yeah. different makeup. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but you touched on that there, kind of. But sometimes victims of child abuse or victims of abuses, they can blame themselves. Is that some sort of a coping skill? Oh, the, the, that is a fundamental issue of human development. That when you're three years old, uh, you have nothing to compare whatever happens to you with. So, like, I have two grandchildren in Ireland, actually, where I talk with every other day. They're getting Irish accent just like you do. Um, <laughs> and I say to them, you are so cute. You're so wonderful. Huh? And my grandkids don't say, oh, no, I'm just a regular kid. Don't exaggerate. <laughs> when, when you're three years old and somebody says you're wonderful, you are wonderful. <laughs> and if you're three years old and somebody says you're no, no good and you're a horrible person and you will never amount to anything, that you don't go like, Hmm, that's weird because I'm really quite a good person and that person who's talking to me is a violent alcoholic. Why should I listen to that person? A three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old cannot do that. So what happens to them is the reality. Uh, only at some point in your life, like maybe you guys are old enough by now and I'm old enough to go like, hmm, this guy <laughs> being an unpleasant person and this is not because I'm an unpleasant, d difficult person myself. But to learn how to do that, takes a fair amount of life experience and some wisdom in your brain. And when you're abused as a kid, it always is like, this must happen to me because I'm a bad child. Yeah. Mm. I have ne and I've met thousands of people who are abused as kids. I've never met anybody who said, I was a perfectly wonderful child, but my parents were crazy. Mm. That's something, a conclusion you come to much later, but that imprint of I'm fundamentally flawed is a very, very profound imprint, actually. People can, can get over it. We've seen people get better uh, from it, but it's it's a tough one. Yeah. In, in your book, one of the most profound things, I think, one of the lines I read was around um, traumatized brains having physical scars on them that were like stroke victims. Um, can you talk about that? And is there a way out of that? Can, can them scars be patched over and be healed? Well, that's that's a good. It's it's not quite. Um, yeah, it's a metaphor. You know, it's, it's not it's not like your brain is not identical to one of a stroke victim, but yeah. functionally, you really as, as we have all been there. When we get really scared, we all become blubbering idiots mm. and cannot talk. And even in you guys who have gone through recovery, so you really have, have done it yourself, you know that when you're really distressed, you hardly have any language. You mainly have reactions. And learning to find words for your experience is a terribly important part. And it's like in my book, I really talk about the importance of trying to keep a journal and writing down what your feelings are, being able to talk with other people, uh, so group therapy, very helpful. Uh, so you can find words and then somebody else sometimes can say things where you go like, yeah, that's what it was like. Uh, but I don't have the words myself. Uh, so you can borrow words from each other to get a greater perspective 
of who you are. And as you form these words with other people, you also get a feeling of connection with people. And so one of the big things about being traumatized is you feel you're so isolated. And the word I used in my book before the last one a lot was the word God forsaken. Hey, I, I mm. bet you guys know what that feels like. If you, yes. You feel God forsaken. And uh, nothing means anything. And maybe your next dose of heroin is more important than uh, not stealing from your parents. And and so you get driven and you feel like an, uh, just a person who is who has no control over his life. And finding words for yourself and getting a sense of perspective and being with other people, uh, that's why the 12-step programs is such a uh, universally extremely helpful part of the recovery process is to meet people who ha- who help you to, to find words and to say, this happened to me and I continue to be very frightened of situations like this and to get a sense of perspective and a sense of ownership. Yeah, this is my life and this was happened back then when I was four years old or when I was eight or when I was 12. But today I'm 48 and it's not happening right now, but you need only by having the words for it can you get a sense of perspective. Yeah, and I, we talk about there, you know, the God forsaken piece, but a big part of addiction for me is the self loading, the piece where you're stealing from people, some people that you love, and you're doing things that bring you a lot of shame. But then, even in recovery, if you go through the 12 steps, like myself and Timmy did, and different forms of recovery like that we will talk about. But even many years in recovery, and Timmy, you might want to come in here, but shame can crop up in our lives, you know. Um, And we spoke about that at length on the podcast, you know. But shame can be very hard for people in in addiction and recovery to try and move past. Yeah. Yeah. See, it's a tough one uh, because shame is also an important emotion. For example, the last American president, the previous one, had absolutely (laughs) no sense of shame. Uh, And if you don't have a sense of shame, you have permission to do terrible things to other people. Mm -hmm. So uh, we shouldn't say shame, let's just, I hope nobody feels ashamed anymore because shame is an important social emotion to have to not hurt each other. Uh, But at some point, some very reasons to, to feel very bad about what you've done, and then I think I think you need to atone. Yeah, you know, sure. And that's part of the problem with being abused as a kid, because you pay with your childhood, and you do all these other things, and then you have to pay for what you've done, not only with, what other people have done to you. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's a very hard life. Yeah. yeah. Can can shame be passed on as well through families, Bessel? Um, like in in my own family, I knew my mother ha- had a difficult life. And yeah. um, she was a single parent. She brought up three boys and her own. And yeah. like, I have a lot of shame, but I don't know where it's coming from. A lot, a lot of shame. Um, yeah. It started when I gave up the alcohol and drugs. I was left with real deep shame. And a lot of the time, that form of shame would have, like there was many many times like i wanted to take my own life because i couldn't handle the way i was feeling internally and i didn't understand it because i didn't have the words as you explained earlier on not having the words i wasn't educated because of uh school wouldn't have been something that i was able to focus on as a young child because my mother had severe mental health problems you know um but the shame thing i think in ireland as as a nation, a country, like a lot of people struggle with, with that kind of intergenerational shame. Can you explain how it is then transferred onto people, onto different individuals, children and stuff like that, even yeah. though it's not even their own? Well, to me, that's that makes perfect sense. Huh? Uh, the, the poet, you probably know the poem, in Ireland also said, said goes, you really, they really screw you up, your mom and dad. And they do screw you up, your mom and dad, because your mom and dad have their own set of issues. And they come from poverty and violence and alcoholism oftentimes. And so they have particular reactions when you're growing up, uh, where you see them becoming all frozen or uptight or frightened about something. And they say things to you 
that have a very deep impact. And they may say to you as a little kid, you're disgusting. Uh, and that's disgusting because they feel disgusted about something they did themselves. And these messages do get uh, passed from generation to generation, which is part of the reason why it's so much more helpful if you get raised by more than one parent or if you have a bunch of adults in your life. So as a kid, you can see uh, that person seems to be very warm and loving and that person seems to be always angry and uptight and frightened. Oh, there's different ways of arranging your life. But if you live in a very small nuclear family with a single mom and who is lonely and upset and frightened and may have a lack of own support, that's going to rub off on you in a major way. Mm. It doesn't mean that you're condemned for the rest of your life, but boy, will it shape you. Mm. There's a quote in your book, and it states, having been exposed to family violence as a child often makes it difficult to establish stable, trusting relationships <laughs> as an adult. Yeah. Is it possible that something could happen to you as a baby or a child that you don't recall or remember, but it actually impacts on your ability to build relationships later in life? Like if you can't, like sometimes people say if something went on in the family, oh, it's okay, he won't remember it when he's older. But you, would you think that the, they actually will remember? They might be able to recall it, but the body will remember. Yeah, these, these things leave an imprint. Huh? Your, your mind and your brain gets formed by your experiences early on. And so if you have an experience of being held and comforted and fed and gleaned and making music together, you get that feeling of uh, internal sense of warmth. Uh, but uh, if you don't get it, that, that stays with you. And then you need to have experiences that make up for it, that, that's, that are different. That's part of the reason why I love theater and people making music together and people creating, uh, doing Irish dances together and uh, taiko drumming, you know, uh, anything that really helps you to go, Oh, that's what it feels like when people collaborate with each other. This is what it feels like when people take care of each other. You need to have those experiences, uh, visceral experiences help you to go like, yeah, oh, it can be different. Huh? Yeah. And that brings us into the recovery piece that I wanted to talk about. Yeah. Like, f for me, 12-step program, residential treatment, psychotherapy, group sessions, these are all what helped me. And university education give me the vocabulary and the understanding, learning about psychology and social class and all these things. I begin to understand and move past it. For Timmy then, Timmy did that, but he was a big um, advocate for meditation and psychedelics. So maybe we kind of touch on them. But Timmy, maybe if you want to talk about your experience with meditation psychedelics first. Well, with the meditation, I early on when I did when I did give up alcohol and drugs, uh, I wasn't educated enough to be able to read books and understand what was going on for me. Um, and a psychotherapist, a psychologist within the prison system, advised me to meditate. And at the time, I could barely sit and meditate, but. My head was gone so far, my mental health was so bad at the time, I was willing to do anything else. Um, so I tried meditation and I sat for a few minutes and I kept going and it was very, very difficult for me. Sometimes I would have to put my hands on my legs to stop them from shaking up and down. And But in time, I was able to grasp real quiet spells of pure kind of consciousness and awareness and during those episodes, I wasn't doing, it wasn't that I wasn't thinking, it was just I wasn't taking too much notice of the, the, the critic that was in my in my head or the, the negative talk. So I meditated for years and years and years and I strengthened that sense of mindful awareness where I could watch my thoughts and not be critical to them and I could be a little, I could be more compassionate to myself around my thoughts and I, I, I got to know that my thoughts weren't who I was and I knew that they were related to my experiences in life and the influences of different people in my life. So meditation really um, saved my life. You know, it was later on I, I started learning a little bit more about my childhood, uh, particularly the trauma and how it affected me as an adult. 
because I was I was after learning to read and write on all these different teams and I became more academic, right? But I I went to psychotherapists, counsellors, all these different things for a number of years, six, seven, eight years, and I never felt any different internally. I knew it all up here in my head, but I still felt like I was no good, that I was a bad person. I, I, I didn't, I just was no good for this world. But... I then decided, this was even with the meditation, but I then decided to try psychedelics. It was firstly DMT, and I experienced my first, first sense of love. It was like I got love for the first time in my life, um, and I got some information as well that was only relevant to, to me, and, and it helped me massively, and that made me then go on to research ayahuasca, and and I done some research around that, and I went to a facility here in Ireland where they facilitated three nights of ayahuasca with me there, and that's when I experienced love for the first time on a, on a deep level. And um, my mother wasn't able to give it because of her own situation growing up, and when I came home to my kids and my wife after being away that weekend. Um, I I was able to tell what love really was because these things were happening in my daily life, but I didn't know what it was. But during that ayahuasca session, I felt love for the first time. I felt sadness, um, and it just changed my whole life. But I would I would also say this: I was after being meditating for many years at this stage, and I was able to really go with the session, the ayahuasca session. I sat with it, I trusted it, and it it, it really really opened up doors to my life. I haven't used it since. That was two and a half years ago. I haven't got a calling for it, um. But it also cleansed my body on the third night of the session. I could feel a green energy coming up from my legs. And it cleared my first center, the lower center, the perineum, but it stopped in the second center, and it just froze. But I knew I was, I I knew there was more work to be done, you know. A bit, and I left it at that, so I didn't look into it too much after that. But since then, since using ayahuasca, I feel love. I feel a lot more compassion for myself, um, and my life has changed dramatically. You know, I don't want to pack my bags and run away from responsibility of being a husband or a father anymore. That changed. I left my bags down every time there was some form of, of adverse situation in my life or family life. I just wanted to pack a bag and leave them all because I couldn't handle it. All that stopped, you know, once I'd done it. Um, does that make a lot of sense to you, Bessel? Oh, yeah. I'm just sitting here in awe because I have some appreciation for it sounds so simple what you went through, but boy, this was a, a major pilgrimage. This was a crusade. This was a uh, going into the dark gates of hell, and uh, and that's what it takes. And I, I'm always in awe of everybody who has gone the journey and has come to tell us about it because it's it's so moving. And that's what makes for me makes this work so extraordinary, mm -hmm. is how hard people work. Uh, to get better and the enormous effort it takes and so I really honor you for what you just said as an example uh, for the rest of us also about uh, how it can be because it's, it's very difficult when you're meditation is difficult for everybody but when you have all that stuff sitting in your body man it's agonizing and for you to have stuck with it I imagine you had some mentor or tutor helped you with your courage a little bit. Uh, yeah. By and large, these are things that are just about impossible to do all by yourself, but with a, a supporter, a, a coach, a guru, mm -hmm. a person you look up to, that, that can just give you enough courage to stick with... Uh, because it's very easy to get nihilistic and say, I can't stand it anymore. And because that's the natural thing when you're traumatized. And so... Yeah. Uh, uh, and I also want to say something about psychedelics. Because it's a very hot topic. Actually, I like to mm. say uh, psychedelics and neurofeedback. Um, one thing that is not has not gotten the traction that I think it deserves 
is uh, the computer face, inter computer brain interface systems, where you can play computer games with your own brain, and you can change the circuitry in your own brain. Uh, I have a chapter on that in my book, uh, and we've done a lot of work since that time. Uh, very effective. And I wish that more people would use that because it allows you to be mindful. Um, it makes it easier to be mindful if you do it without assistance. And so, because your brain is so agitated, so helping the brain to calm itself down. So you can do meditation, that might be a good thing. Um, the second piece, though, is psychedelics. And what you say about ayahuasca is very much what. Uh, a large number of people have told me, I've never taken ayahuasca myself, uh, but uh, several people have told me that ayahuasca was more profound for them than anything else they have ever done. Uh, uh, so the, the troublesome thing is that these substances uh, are mainly illegal. I'm actually delighted to hear that there's a place in Ireland you can go to where you can do that. I, I don't think there's even a place in the US where you could uh, legally do ayahuasca, as far as I know, although a lot of people are doing it, uh, but more on the ground. But in my research, so uh, in my research, I can give MDMA ecstasy uh, in a laboratory setting. And uh, for me, the biggest uh, finding we found on MDMA is a dramatic increase in self-compassion. Mm. Uh, mm. That uh, people really go deep inside and could can experience what they went through. I said, and the reaction is usually, oh, that poor kid. Oh my God, what <clears> this kid went through. And rather than hating that kid for mm. all the things people told him or or that he told himself, you go like, this kid was just one and a half years old. Oh my God, and he had nobody. And I wish I could have been there for him. And you have these, we see this all the time, these intense, uh, you cannot help but say the word spiritual transformations. Uh, these are really, these are transcendental experiences where you really get to see yourself over time. They go like, wow, that little kid, he was so angry. Of course he was angry. And you get to really see with compassion and perspective what you went through back then. And you can say, thank God it's over. And you really get this, and that's the thing with being traumatized, is that you still always feel like it's happening. But then when you take psychedelics in the right circumstances, very important. Don't do it by yourself. Do it in a very careful setting, as they do in ayahuasca. And you go like, oh, thank God it's over. <laughs> January 2022. I'm no longer that frightened little kid. I'm no longer that kid who has nobody to turn to. And so you get a sense of perspective, but but to get there is a big job. Yeah, yeah. And when so you I spoke, really, I really honor everybody who's gone through his journey, Lagai. Like yeah, thank you. When you mentioned ecstasy, Timmy left a, a gulp of air, and I did too because what you were ex what you were talking about, we both experienced. And I remember when I first started taking ecstasy in my late teens, and I remember taking it. I remember the first time it was like this is what I've been lacking, this is what I, you know, this is where I belong, this is where I should be, and just feeling so comfortable in that space where all that emotional pain and self-loathing and inner critic is all put aside, and next you feel love and you feel belonging and a sense of community, but then, like, if it's not in the right environment, then you can just run with that and take too much, and it just brings its own consequences down the line. So it's important, you know, that everything is controlled, like you say. But what but, but Timmy is also talking about is that having that experience of, oh, this is what love feels like. Mm. Huh? Uh, if, you, if you've never experienced it, how are you going to love your kids yeah. if, if you don't know from the inside what it feels like? And so you're not the first person to describe to me how on ayahuasca they got to know what love was like. And MDMA sometimes also. I th from what I gather, ayahuasca is a more profound experience. Yeah. But I don't know. Nobody's compared to anything yet. Yeah. yeah. From from taking both drugs, ecstasy and the ayahuasca, the ecstasy, um, it kind of takes complete control. But with the ayahuasca, um, it was like it was a different experience completely because 
there was no ego there. There was no looking across the room wondering what somebody else was doing or how stoned they were. But with the ayahuasca, you were completely tuned into whatever a lot of people call it, Mother Earth. And from my experience, it was a female as well because of the love that I gathered. Um, but I, I, it was explained to me afterwards then by one of the facilitators that the love that I actually got during that session and the sadness I actually felt was the sadness from my own childhood, how that child felt when different things were happening to him. And the love that I felt was the love that was given to me as a raw child that was always within me, but I never got the opportunity to feel it. You know, so... To me, this is such a profound observation. And I've seen this in quite a few people who I've treated over the years of horrendous trauma and now they're adults, and that loving peace never got destroyed. Uh, some of the most loving people I know are some of the most hurt people I know also. So it's not as the one way of framing it is, is hurt people hurt people, mm. and they do. Huh? But that's not the only thing that happens. Huh? This capacity for generosity and love, um, I see it being intact in so many people. Uh, once all the other layers are taken care of, then uh, that loving creature comes out. It's, it's really very remarkable. I'm really glad you're sharing your experience with us because people need to hear that. Yeah, yeah you're welcome. Brilliant. So it's a lot of people that we would know, Bessel, like, as I said earlier on, psychotherapy and 12 steps would have helped us. Um, but for some people to talk about their traumas, they just won't go there. But in your book, you speak about EMDR, which is another form of therapy where you can actually recover or work through the trauma without actually disclosing details to another person. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Well, EMDR was really the, the first method I discovered uh, that helped me to sort of leave the old paradigm of drugs and talking. I go like, oh, there's some other ways in which we can change people's information processing uh, where you can lay things to rest. And so I did the first NIH-funded study on EMDR, and it had very dramatic effects on the memory of particular incidences. Huh? There is, uh, these, indeed, these, I think people don't want to talk about because the moment you bring it to your mind, you flip out or you start feeling just the way you felt back then. And so, no, I don't want to tell you about my rape. No, I don't want to tell you about my how I was beaten up because once, if I do that, my whole body starts re-experiencing what that was like. Huh? And so EMDR for me was the first method I learned where you could just allow people to feel a little bit of it, do the desensitization, and the memory is so quiets down and it goes like yeah it happened what did happen back then i so say you the, somehow and we did the research actually to show what happens in the brain but somehow the emdr makes it possible for the brain to get a sense of perspective of that was then and this is now very much like what all good treatments in a way do so the ayahuasca does the same thing also like uh, uh, and also on, I, I imagine that on ayahuasca or whatever you did, you did not tell people all the exquisite details no. of what happened back then. Because the issue is not what you tell other people, it's what you can tell yourself. Mm. And it's really an, at the end, an internal dialogue of, uh, of becoming precious to yourself, uh, to, to really experience yourself. This is the only creature I am. That's all there is. And... I need to take care of this creature that is my body and that's my mind and that's my soul and really fully taking responsibility for that this is who I am uh, uh, and I'll look after myself and take care of myself and uh, and make that central. But it's at the end, it's very much uh, we need people around us to affirm us and to inspire us and to be examples. But at the end, it's... Time attributed is really about your coming into the clear with yourself. And it sounds from the way you guys are talking that that's something you have done and that you know from, from experience. Yeah. 
Yeah. In, in, in Ireland, we have a strong sporting tradition, uh, even in our home cities. You know, myself and Timmy would have been uh, no. played soccer, would have played yeah. soccer, and we have GA like hurling and Gaelic football, yeah. which you might be aware of. But can you talk about the role team sports can have in helping somebody to recover from addiction and trauma? Well, I, I can do it not, not to affect trauma, but a uh, very long time ago when I was still a student, I learned that being able to play uh, team sports for boys is one of the greatest predictors of, of psychological health. And that makes perfect sense to me because in team sports, you need to pass the ball, you need to see where other people are at, you need to, your ego is not the most important thing because it's really the team and you contribute to the team and your timing needs to be just right. You know, when you get traumatized, the timing is never right. <laughs> Dad comes home, he beats you up. Uh, it's not like, oh, it's 8 o'clock, I better be out of the house, because it will happen at some other time. So the issue about trauma is very predictable. But when you play team sports, your actions have an effect. And if you do it just right, you go like, wow, I just played with the right person, and you feel interconnected. Uh, it is you in service of the team, and you share the glory, and you get a sense of community, which is so falls apart when you're traumatized. Every traumatized person is by themselves, uh, fundamentally. And so I think team sports are incredibly powerful things. And one of the things I admire the Irish for, and what you guys brought to Australia with your Australian rules football, which is which yeah. you also, I think, uh, is a major contribution to world civilization, actually. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. We'll take that compliment. But I think another thing for team sports as well, in my experience, was impulse control. I, yep. I, like as as somebody in addiction, I was very impulsive. If if I didn't feel like it, I didn't do it, or I was very reactive. But when I come into early recovery, when I come out of residential treatment and I joined the team, then like as you said, your actions have an effect on the team, so you become more like. I'm not just going to react and think about it, and then I'm going to make a decision based on oh, the yeah. interests of the rest of the team. Yeah, very powerful. You know, I, I'm glad you guys bring it up because you know, nobody in a psychiatry textbook will ever talk about the importance of team sports. Uh, but these are such important components of recovery, of knowing your vital part of a larger group of people, which you are not when you're an abused kid. And you just feel you're a pain in the ass person, but no, I can help you score a goal. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what well, another another um another form of recovery that you speak well about is acting and drama. And I think you give the example of um this person who was very uh, seen themselves as being a very weak individual and feeble, and then they joined the acting class, and he got the role as being like a tough, strong character, and it really helped him overcome his traumas. Yeah. What is it about acting and drama that helps people to recover? Well, you know, when you're traumatized, you just have your own experience. So you are the universe for yourself and you're frozen or you're angry or agitated, whatever. And now you need to play a mermaid. And you go like, wow. <laughs> so it's just still on a rock and they have a tail and they smile. Oh, let me try to be a mermaid. Oh boy, that's very different from how ordinary you <laughs> in the world. And then at one point, I played the role of Lady Macbeth, who sexually <laughs> into killing his king. Now, boys, as you know, we are trained to not kill our kings. We are trained to be loyal. And mm. so poor Macbeth, he said, never have sex anymore or killing my king. Oh, damn, that's a torture. Okay, I'll kill my king. And then he doesn't really want to do it. And the Lady Macbeth says, if he had also resembled my father, I would have done the deed myself. <laughs> and to stand up there for me to be an evil queen, like, oh, that's what it feels like to be an evil queen. Wow, that's a different experience. <laughs> and so oh. Playing these different roles is an important part of becoming a flexible human being. Uh, and to know other people also. Oh, they're scared. I know what is scared because I played a scared character in a play. Okay. Uh, so really, you you enlarge your vocabulary and then hopefully you get to uh, articulate these beautiful lines by William Shakespeare who knew everything and was amazing. 
Yes, he totally he was. We, we've spoken about a number of different ways of um, people getting recovered from, from trauma. Is there any new form of anything coming to the surface at the moment that um, is really, really um, hitting the limelight and, and, and could be really beneficial from pe- for, for a lot of people in terms of healing trauma and stuff that maybe we haven't spoke about at the moment outside yeah. of meditation? What's interesting to me is that um, we're always looking for the latest and the newest. Uh, but for every latest and newest thing we discover, we forget something that used to work. Huh? For example, hypnosis for a century was the treatment of choice for trauma. Very useful. Hypnosis doesn't exist anymore. Huh? Mm. And then um, EMDR came along and EMDR is very good treatment. And um, I think I do a lot of EMDR. The EMDR is a little bit like hypnosis. And I tell Francine Shapiro, who invented EMDR, I said, do you think EMDR is like hypnosis? And she says, oh, no, it's nothing like it. It's completely different. I go, I didn't know that. It's very similar. And uh, I have the same attitude with psychedelics. Psychedelics is the great new topic. And I hope it works out. I'm really afraid the same thing will happen this time as last time, that people will not be able to contain it and and be careful with it because these are uh, potentially dangerous substances. Um, so psychedelics are hot, and I think it's good. Uh, but like the other thing I've been working on, neurofeedback, is barely getting any traction. It's going to happen someday because it's very powerful, but somehow it hasn't caught the popular imagination. Uh, but basically, what you guys have covered from your own experience is uh, uh, meditation going inward, learning to tolerate what you are. Uh, And so in that regard, we tend to rely on uh, Asian traditions who've done that much longer and better than us Westerners have. And so uh, yoga, uh, very helpful. Uh, I don't think people have studied Qigong and, and Tai Chi thoroughly for trauma, but I bet it does exactly what you're also talking about. And so these Asian techniques of going inside and learning how to be still is they're very old and for some people very young. You know, until recently, I doubt, I doubt whether many people in Ireland did yoga because they probably said it was worshipping some evil god instead of the Catholic <laughs> Church. And, uh, don't do yoga, it's the devil. Let's just abuse kids here, like at home. Like, uh, Don't bring mm. the foreigners in here. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we, we have, we, even though we have uh, the Catholic Church, but we have a strong tradition of pagan worship as well, so um, it's important to note that. We, we gave the world Halloween, if you remember. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing that you mentioned, but you didn't really speak about, was dance and in your book you talk about like the the role dance can play in terms of like tango and and dance where you're t- close your bodies are close and you're touching how does that help people that have been abused or traumatized it's, it's interesting but, but so interesting for me to talk to different people they pick up different pieces in the book and it's interesting what you guys are picking up uh this to me is actually a very central theme that scientifically we have not explored enough but Life is about rhythm. I like right now, I really enjoy talking to you guys. And Thank you. I have some feeling in my body of a rhythmicity between us. Yeah. Uh, we even interrupt each other already a little bit so early on. <laughs> uh, and, but uh, there's little music going on. And when you traumatize, there is no music between you and other people. Everything's halted, everything's stilted. And life is about rhythm. You know, you. I know that Tim has kids. I don't know if James has kids no. also. Dogs. Uh, dog. Well, dog, <laughs> you're with, with your dogs also. I mean, they're very rhythmical animals. Huh? Uh, yeah. But it's all about attunement and moving your bodies in sync and with each other. Uh, it's interesting, again, think about uh, Irish history. How, mm. how did Ireland get to be a hotbed of music and, uh, and singing? Uh, in part probably because you had to, because type life was so tough. And the, the thing that gives you a sense of pleasure and community and purpose in life is yeah. if you can make beautiful music together. And yeah. I think a lot of music comes out of the depth of darkness. Uh, that makes you have a connection, a sense of 
of pleasure and, and uh, synchrony. The, the word I like to use is synchrony, uh, being in sync with each other. And all yeah. trauma is the opposite of being in sync. Yeah. Team sports is zen. That's being in sync. Huh? You play a beautiful game, ever did all the right things. You play music together. Uh, I was blown away by tango dancing when I went to Buenos Aires and saw the horribly traumatized places. I go like, these people had to invent tango dancing. Otherwise, they would have all killed themselves. Like, you know, learning how yeah. to do that gives you that sense of somatic vitality. Yeah. If you look at the in Africa at the moment, there's the Africa Cup of Nations, you know the the soccer tournament, and in the news you see the African players and the, the rhythm they have, the the fans understand the African rhythm is unbelievable. But yeah. it's about in, in one of the most you know in the third world countries, it makes total sense now based off what you're saying. They create this because of you know to take them away from that other negativity. Yeah, yeah, I I wonder why the Northern Europeans of which I'm one lost all sense of rhythm over over time you know like, <laughs> yeah it's so important yeah yeah you Brilliant. know you know a child uh, Bessel, this is just a question for myself a, a child that has gone through maybe a traumatic experiences does that affect that child um intellectually in terms of in school can that affect it if there's been a lot of trauma and how how do you think it's a very important question and by and large uh data show that being traumatized makes it extremely hard for you to concentrate, to focus, to learn, and to learn from experience. So the vast majority of traumatized kids will do badly, and that will aggravate their chances to have a good future for themselves. There's always a few people, quite a few of whom have made their way to my office, who hide themselves in particular talents. And so you can be very traumatized, but become an excellent piano player or an excellent dancer. Or another uh, great example I have is Isaac Newton, who invented mathematics. Hor horrible trauma history. Uh, he was a little crazy also. You know, <laughs> very traumatized guy. Uh, and he invented mathematics. So he mm. could hide himself in their math. And a lot of traumatized people I've known have found a place to hide, to sort of park their souls. It may be in drawing, it may be in science, it may be. And so some, some traumatized people do exceptionally well, actually, on some level. But overall, I would say the great, and that's actually a very big thing, motivator for me, is that if you get traumatized as a kid, your chances to to develop and to be good at learning and to take things in gets quite impaired. Yeah. The yeah. Brilliant. The last, the last thing I wanted to ask you about, Bessel, we spoke about lots of uh, forms of therapy um, and holistic approaches and alternative approaches, but a lot of the people that would be that we'd be friends with, that people that access the podcast, would be taking medications like Prozac and. Uh, SSRIs, antidepressants, there is still a role for medication in the treatment of trauma. Is that okay? Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, I'm not on a crusade against psychiatric medications. I'm on a crusade against psychiatrists whose only trick is to give drugs to people. Mm. Uh, and uh, sometimes a little Prozac or Danceron um, or, or something may be helpful to take the edge off. I actually did the first studies of Prozac and Zoloft for trauma uh, when I was still young and looking for respect. Uh, and <laughs> they weren't bad, but the eventual conclusion I drew was this is they're not going to heal people. So uh, I still have my prescription blank, but I left my job as chief psychopharmacologist at one of the Harvard teaching hospitals because drugs were not the answer. It doesn't mean that drugs can never be helpful, but um, they're not going to cure your PTSD. Mm -hmm. I think Timmy's story is much closer to a real story. That's, yeah, that's how people heal from trauma. Yeah. And boy, it doesn't come cheap. No. But very worth it. Very worth it, isn't it? Yeah. 
Most definitely, yeah. The best of it's been an absolute pleasure and an honour to speak with you. Really enjoyed it. You've got a lovely energy that came across the Atlantic to us and um, it was an honour to talk to you and thanks for taking the Thank time. You. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be on your programme. Thank you very much. God, God bless and ha- have a nice day and happy new year to you and your family. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to the rise and fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.